0: Okay, good. Well, let's get to God's word. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Big words that we're about to hear. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And this is what we're focusing on today. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What a statement by Jesus. And um, today, I want to wrap up this Face in the Giant series, which was Matthew chapter 5 as a whole. And, and what a journey Matthew chapter 5 has been. If you've been with us from the beginning, I tell you, it has been 10 months of, of real joy and challenge of seeing how Jesus starts by saying, anybody here who wants to follow me, Raise yourself. You're in for the most wonderful change in your life. If you take following Jesus seriously, it was described in the Beatitudes, remember? Oh, man, this transforming power of Jesus and the Spirit changing us, starting off with being poor in Spirit, leading us to righteousness. And then he goes on to say, this effect in your life is what the world sees. You become salt and light. And then he goes on to say, but, but just remember, and this was the radical part of the series, is that this is not by any law. Don't you think it was amazing for Jews? They've been told to keep this law from the beginning. And Jesus is saying, that's not how you're going to reach this righteousness. That's not going to you're going to affect this change. That law is too low for you. Ah, he begins to unpack what righteousness looks like in the Christ follower. And he does it in a pattern. He shows first of all what the law says, then he shows what he commands. And that's where we got facing the giants from, is he chooses six areas where there are massive giants in our society and even in our own fleshiness in the way that we have to respond as Christians who love Jesus, is this life calls us to rise to the peak of godliness. And that's where we got to. We've been climbing a mountain. And, and two weeks ago, Pierre wrapped up this part of this awesome message where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But ah, I say to you, Jesus, on his own authority, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, can I just point out today, is there anything more supernatural than that? Is there anything more supernatural than a human being looking at the enemy and saying, I forgive you? And I don't just forgive you. I pray blessing on your life. Like R.T. Kendall said, it was brilliant. Anybody here trusting for a miracle? Maybe for a healed back or a fixed knee? Let me tell you, the greatest miracle that can happen is when you start praying for your enemies. It is something so other than this world. It is something so unnatural to ourselves. And we have, we have scaled the hearts. We've gotten higher and higher week by week. And we're at the peak today where we get to survey this, this wonderful scenery and how fitting at the summit is love. I so? We started off with love of self. God has so transformed us that he's saying, love your enemies. Is there anything more wonderful than that where we've reached this point where Jesus will say, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and i want to say to you today it is no accident that jesus ends these giants on love and i want to point it out to you today there is nothing more miraculous in this love that he is wanting to birth in us and change us into and shape us into so that when people look at us they can see our father in heaven that's what jesus is saying and from scripture I want to build a bit of case today, a case to, for us today, that whenever scripture reaches a high point, it talks about love. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse uh, 5, I've been chewing on this this whole week. This is what Peter says. This is his summit. He says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge And knowledge with self control, and self control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with brotherly affection, and godliness, and brotherly affection with love. Or how about Peter when he talks about love in one Corinthians thirteen? He does the most, you know, know beautiful passage. Love is patient, love is kind. Does not envy, does not boast. What does he say at the end of it all? He says, "Well, he says faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is." Love. There's the peak. Oh, I'm not finished yet. How amazing in Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, Paul has just been telling Christians, you're not under the law, you're under the Spirit. You have to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And he sums it all all up by saying in Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Can I say to you today, this is, the unpacking of the Sermon of the Mount. It starts with faith, that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we are poor in spirit, that means we've come to a place of faith. It means we understand that our, our, the way we look and our righteousness and our works is so far short from this glorious God in heaven. And seeing how we are drives us to the one that needs to save us, Jesus. Friends, poverty of spirit is the gateway to faith. And the Sermon on the Mount starts with Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And how does it end? It ends up with talking about love. Being perfected in love like our Father who is in heaven. And isn't it amazing that the greatest peak of all scripture is when Jesus summarizes all of the commands in the prophets in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 40. What does he say? Is You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. Oh, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On this, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. My friends today, why am I talking and taking such a long time to make this statement? Is that you need to understand, and I need to understand that the measure of a person's life is not their intellect, is not their talents, is not their status in society, it's not their wealth or material possessions, not even their accomplishments. Can I point out all of those things have been given by God anyway? Some of us are so clever here. Where did that intellect come from? But Tiff, brilliant brain, it's from God. Those beautiful SUVs outside, my little Ford Figo. Is that by my own efforts? It's God. And what the world does is the world amasses all of their stuff there, in inverted commas, and we tend to think the same. He has all of our accomplishments. He has all of us. Oh, there's that guy. who's achieved so much. My friend, he could not achieve anything if God had handed, handed not provided it. Amen? And we're so concerned about the standards and thinking of this world when God's saying, it's all my stuff. Those beautiful clothes that are in your closet, that's God's. Those beautiful children you're so proud of, that's God's. That wonderful talent and gift, Steve's ability to shape families, God's given him that gift. That's got nothing to do with him. Let me tell you what makes the measure of a man or woman in the kingdom is not what his talents are or her talents are. It is this, how much they have been transformed in their ability to love. For what is the one word that describes God himself? God is love. And we have to adjust our thinking of what is greatness in the kingdom. My friend, no one might know your name, but if you have grown in your capacity to love, God knows your name. If anyone wants to be great in God's kingdom, what must he become? The most great intellect? The most brilliant uh, sportsman? No, no, he must become the servant of all. Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh as a nobody. He loved when he was abused. He loved when he was rejected. He was loved when he, mis- when he was misunderstood. This Jesus set the model of what love looks like. Oh, perfect love. Perfect love is the heart and summit of godliness. And this is the summit we've had to climb. The highest form of God's description is love in 1 John 4 verse 8. And being perfect, being perfect church, being perfect is a call to be perfected in love. It is at the heart of becoming like God. And that's why we've said this year a number of times, what has God been calling us as a church to? He's calling us to love. Oh, we're going to have to do better than that. He's, he's calling us to love. He's calling us to love. He's calling us to love. Do you know that that's a summary of the two greatest commandments? Loving up is you shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Oh, and the other two are just unpacking what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It is to love the brethren and it's to love the outside of the lost. Church, this is what he wants us to become. We might have the greatest buildings, but in the absence of love, we have the absence of God. We might have the greatest children's programs, but without the absence of love, we have the absence of his very presence. This is the call of what brings down the pleasure of God, is how are we growing in love? How much are we loving him? And how much are we loving those that God has made us brothers and sisters with? And how much are we loving those whom God wants us to touch? And may I point out to you today, every single one of these giants is a picture of how love for God or love for somebody else overcomes them. Think about it for a moment. What would possibly want to stop you from that unrighteous anger of wanting to either verbally or physically beat that person that's offended you? It's your love for God. You don't want to displease Him. It's also your love for that person. When you resist lust, let me tell you, you're starting to understand what it means to love God when you resist sin. God is perfect love and he cannot be tempted. He resists every form of temptation as we are growing in our ability to overcome and flee these things that block the kingdom of God in our lives. Oh, my friend, we're starting to grow in the likeness of God. Love is so concerned about the other person that they won't dress in a certain way. They won't say certain things. They won't lure people in. They won't cause others to be tempted. That's the highest form of love when you are guarding your brother. You can read it in Romans, even our freedom, we guard against causing offense to those that are around us. I could go on and on and on, but I won't because of time. Essentially, essentially what God is unpacking is righteousness. And can I explain to you this morning what the simple meaning of righteousness is? It's a determination to love God and love people as perfectly as possible explain it to you like this. What Jesus has been trying to show in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 onwards, where he's trying to unpack these giants and saying, guys, this is how my love needs to be demonstrated in you as you apply your faith, as you move forward. He says, for I tell you, I tell you, unless your righteousness, which I'll paraphrase, unless your love for God and your love for people exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Unless your love of God and your love of people exceeds these guys. The Pharisees just love themselves. And I see so, myself, so much of myself in them. Oh man, they love to have all the things that the world loved, their beautiful clothes and their status at the parties and all the religious ones and the titles. They loved it all. But Jesus is saying, guys, if you're going to take on the kingdom, if you're going to advance my kingdom, if you're going to achieve what I've set you apart for, you have to learn to love much higher, love God much more, love people much more authentically than what these scribes and Pharisees ever did. And this is how you do it. He gives the six giants. Now, don't you think it's interesting, Jesus' words? I want to focus on that today. Jesus says, unless your righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you think theologically about what that word is, your righteousness, there's a bit of an objection. Because he's saying, unless our righteousness exceeds these scribes and Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom. But Jesus has already said, these disciples have the kingdom. I hope you follow me Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. But now Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter that kingdom. What is Jesus saying? I hope you ask the question. Because fundamentally, there are two kinds of righteousness at work here. And I'm hoping to play it out. So just stay with me, okay? This is not your normal kind of preach. But it's important you understand ultimately what this phrase is, be perfect as your heavenly father perfect means. And it comes down to where it all starts. It's this matter of righteousness. And righteousness is a right standing with God in every area, in position and in behavior. There are two kinds of righteousness. And the first is, in the very first beatitude, God says to us, through Jesus, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. In other words, he's speaking about the moment of saving faith when you recognize, Oh, you're not as pretty, I'm not as pretty as what I thought I was. And suddenly I'm in a crisis. That's how faith starts. If this has never been you, I just have to question whether you truly understood faith. There's a crisis where you understand your unworthiness before this God of righteousness. And you, when you come to this God of righteousness, you suddenly see yourself as mirrored in him and you recognize you are so unrighteous. Has that happened to you this morning? There are many things that the Christian faith is presented as, but let me tell you, it starts by understanding we are totally poor before this God of heaven in righteousness. When we see this God of glory and his perfect righteousness and he shines his reflection onto us, what we see is we are unrighteous. We are poor. In righteousness. And that drives us to faith. And the second, it drives us to Jesus. It is trusting in a righteousness outside of ourselves. This is very important. In order to become a Christian, you have to receive another's righteousness. And that righteousness is called Jesus Christ. And the glory is, when that happens, suddenly you receive a righteousness that becomes as your own. You receive a position where you're called. By the new birth, a child of God, a citizen of heaven. You're given all the privileges and rights of a person who is in the kingdom by birth. You are righteous in your position. Now that is the greatest statement for anybody who really thinks here this morning. Is that when you come before God, you're not coming And him saying, well, let's assess you this morning. Let's assess Mark this morning. Oh, Mark, you're a little bit of shaping up a bit. You know, you're not looking too good this morning. I think go away and clean yourself up and come. No, no. Mark has the privilege of the blood of Jesus. When he prays, he's covered by the blood of Jesus. When he stands, he's standing on the blood of Jesus. When he's working and seeking and, and fellowshipping with the Lord, he is covered by the blood of Jesus. Mark is righteous in Christ by sheer grace. Through faith. Amen? When you're coming to God, I'm going to say it over and over because it's the most unnatural thing for us. He's not assessing our righteousness. Praise God. We're coming to a throne of grace. We've already been assessed in Christ's righteousness, and you're welcome to come. You have been given the kingdom. But then, Jesus says, that righteousness that is outside of ourselves has to become our own. That righteousness which was Christ's must become our righteousness. What does that mean? It means that we have to lay hold of this righteousness we receive by faith. This is very important. Is Mark righteous in his position? Yes. But is Mark righteous in his behavior? He'll tell you, no. Not so, Mark. So true, he says is we have to apply what we have received to every single area of our lives. And Jesus says, if we do not apply this righteousness in the most detailed aspects of our emotions like anger, of our temptations like lust, of our marriage covenants, of our words that we say, of the way that we treat those that have hurt us in terms of revenge, of forgiving those that have hurt us in terms of forgiving and praying and blessing, unless we do these things, we will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. What is he talking about? Friends, today... Christ is unlocking the kingdom to anybody here who wants it. You see, we're in a bit of a situation as the church at large, and and I've experienced this, is, is we have an understanding of our faith as being something that we've just received, and that's wonderful, and we stand in it, and that's great. But what Jesus is saying, and that's the Sermon on the Mount, he's trying to push us forward and say, guys, your faith is not just there to stand It's the mere starting point. It is the starting point of helping us enter into the kingdom purposes God has for us. And unless we take righteousness seriously, unless we begin to apply this faith into every areas of our lives, unless we begin to apply this righteousness into every areas of our lives, we will never enter into the kingdom. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, you'll remember. You'll remember that first generation of Israelites. They had to have two kinds of righteousness when they left Egypt. The first was they had to shelter under the blood of the lamb. And they painted their blood on the corner posts of their house. And they sheltered under the blood. And God delivered them from that wicked kingdom, from that kingdom of slavery and darkness, which was hell on earth for them. That was Egypt. And God thrust them forth into what? Into the, into the wilderness. And where were they? Plan to go. Say it louder, come on, Mandy. The Promised Land. In other words, they had not yet entered into the kingdom, although they were qualified in it. And I want to unpack this this morning a little bit because it's important we understand that for those first generation of Israelites, every single one of those Israelites knew there was a little bit of plot of land to be taken. Every single one of them. Doesn't matter what tribe they were from, doesn't matter what background. When they left, there was a promised land. There was something marked out in the purposes of God. And it was this that God's kingdom purpose in heaven would come down on earth in that land, Canaan. God's kingdom on heaven needed to come on earth through whom? Through the Israelites. They were vessels, they were instruments of advancing God's kingdom. And they had to train themselves. For that purpose, they had to seek first the kingdom, that land which God had called them to take for his plans and purposes, over which he would reign as the king. Don't you remember it was such a sin when Israel rejected God as their king and chose Saul? Why? Because God's kingdom is pictured in that land of Canaan where his people have advanced his kingdom to such a degree that he's Lord. He reigns over every single aspect of that domain. My friends, this morning, how much does that motivate you? Are you the kind of Christian to kind of say, I believe, I believe. But I want to be like James this morning and say, well, then show me your works. James says there are two aspects to faith. There is a saving faith where James says, don't you understand yes you stand in the righteousness of jesus by faith alone Ah, oh, but that faith has to be completed he says you show me your faith i'll show you my works because the christian who understands the sermon on the mount understands that salvation faith it's just the start it's just the beginning god has predestined us for good works we're not saved by good works but we have to lay hold of something for which god has laid hold of us isn't that the most exciting thing ever I'll tell you the problem that some of us, we are so spiritually bored here this morning because I was saying at the age, we've got this armchair faith. Now I know it like my bum loves the armchair. So does yours, not so. And it's a lazy boy. We kick out the feet and we want to kind of stay where we are. And we say, God, give me the coffee, give me the tea, give me the meals. I'm loving my armchair faith. But let me tell you now, My friend, this morning, if you do not take righteousness seriously in your life, in other words, this call to apply your position of righteousness to every single area of your life, oh, like that first generation of Israel, perish in the wilderness. when God had an allotment for them to take. And there is an order in this life. Can I say this? I'll put it like this. You have not been designed just to uh, believe something. You have been saved to achieve something for the Lord. And your seriousness, it's an order. 10 o'clock, I've got to say to you, this thing comes as an order. Jesus says, seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Is in our lives. There is something we must be gripped by. And the reason why Jesus said it has to come first is because there is so much contending for that thought space. not so. You know, I've had to... Maybe I'll be a bit vulnerable this morning. I've had to delete the YouTube app off my phone because at any moment I can just click on it and I can start to watch whatever I like. Netflix, whenever we like. Meetings, sports clubs, children's activities. There is so much pressing in on the Christian's mind that eventually the kingdom becomes something that's at the bottom where Jesus is saying it needs to be something at the top. Mandy, you are a teacher where you are at for the kingdom. You are placed where you're at for the kingdom. And God has allotted you that land to go. You need to understand that I am calling you to take this and I'm going to provide for you to have it. But it's not going to come in your armchair. Oh, no, friends, don't remember the story of their first generation of Israelites. I love it. When they're at the Red Sea, what do they've got to do? They've got to trust God. He's going to change it. He's going to open it up. They have to apply their faith. When they move through it, they get there and there's suddenly no food. They need provision. What do they have to do? They have to trust God and God sends manna from heaven and he won't give it for more than one day. When they get to a place of thirst, maybe that's where you are, where you're so thirsty spiritually, you're so dry and you're desperate, and God suddenly says, you have to trust me, and it comes from the most unusual spot, a rock. Oh, man, these guys had to see even the giants in the land that they had to face when they were to see that they were to say, this is the land that God has given me. I'm called to be a giant slayer. And I ask you today, how motivated are you? To seek that kingdom space where God has called you to be a vessel of righteousness and an advancer of his kingdom. It is just for you. And the problem that we have today, this is how it works, is yes, do I believe in salvation through grace, by faith alone? 100%. Do I believe that that is an unshakable foundation? Yes. But do I believe that's all? No. We start off by receiving something. We move it forward by doing something. Like James says, Our faith must be completed by works. We must apply it into every area of our lives. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, there is not one aspect of your life that does not belong to the kingdom. Be perfect. Be complete as your heavenly Father is complete. And God's purpose, this is his glorious purpose in you and me, is he wants the world when they look at us to understand who our Father is. One of the humbling things about Sarah, my girl, is she reflects the imperfection of her dad. You've heard me say it before, I've got this horrible habit of pointing the finger. Marina can't stand it. And when my little girl imitates me, she goes, "Stop it! Stop it, you naughty boy, naughty girl!" Or she'll go, "Naughty daddy!" And when she does it, I want to cringe, because I see in her the mirror of myself, not so. Can I say to you today, the purpose of God in your life, this is the big statement of Matthew chapter 5, is not only to bring you to faith, but to move you forward in it. He's not just saying, guys, sit back, you're in the kingdom. No, no, you have not yet entered the fullness of the kingdom. And the glory of the Christian is to partner with this God in heaven, the Father who saved them, to start looking like him. That when people start to see us, they start to say, there is a child of the God who saved them, their father. They are taking on the ever-increasing likeness of the father who oversaw their rescue. Amen. What a call. And can I say, as the greatest encouragement today. Is that, don't you notice, Jesus uses the word Father. When he says you be like your father perfect the thing i walked away with was lord i want to do this with my life i want to be perfect i want to be complete and what what jesus is saying that greek word does not mean without sin that greek word means mature there is something that god is bringing us to you like wine and if you wine drinkers here you drink the mature wine or cheese eaters here That it is an advancing process of becoming more and more and more mature. You are becoming more and more and more like the God who has saved you. Like your father in heaven. As you face up to these giants. As you love him first. As you love others first. You start to experience the kingdom. And the likeness of what you become is the one who saves you. And as I was thinking about this, and God, I want that for my life, I said, "But who can possibly attain that? I hope you feel like that. I hope you feel. If, you say, if I said you'd be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, I hope you feel the stretch. <laughs> but I felt the Lord clearly say to me, don't you notice the nature of the one who's calling you? It's your Father who promises to fill the gap. You're not called to a God. Be perfect like God. You're not called to be perfect like the Lord. He says, you be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is not a cold clinical command. In actual fact, it's the loving promise of a Father that says, I am calling you to the standard, but don't forget, Christian, I'm going to supply what you need as your Father. I'm not going to be a judge to you. I'm not going to be harsh to you. I'm not going to be unfaithful to you. I'm going to be your father who's in heaven, who loves his kids. Amen. How much different is a father to just a God? Here we have a father who's interested. A father, I love my daughter. I want to see her well-being. I will provide for her. I will lay down my life for her to see her prosper. That is the father's heart for you. A judge, what does a judge care? Whether you've just done something right or wrong. How different the love of the father that knows his child i know sarah the difference between sarah and elijah and you know it too one child's like this one child's like that one child has this set of strengths one child has that set of set of weaknesses god knows you perfectly don't you think he knows exactly where your vulnerable spots are don't you think it's amazing that this father is the one who promises to forgive rather than a judge who just condemns. He's a father that promises to provide, where a judge doesn't care where you go after the sentence or what happens to you. He's a God who's a father who provides security and safety when a judge just brings uncertainty and fear. Oh, and the greatest of all, he's a God that disciplines for restoration, not a God that punishes for retribution. Guys, this is the kind of God, the Father, who's calling us into this purpose. What do you have to fear? Is anything too hard for God? God? Is your flesh stronger than His Spirit? Is anything too strong for His hand to save and rescue you and supply what you need this morning? Let me tell you, the Father is promising to back you 100% as you love Him. And as you love those God brings into your life, however they come. He is your Father who is in heaven. Be perfect. Be mature. Bring yourself to completion. Complete the faith that He has placed in you. Apply it to your life. Complete the righteousness that comes by our partnership with the Spirit, not by our just sitting back. It does not happen by default. The Father is saying, I'm backing you with all of your position, all of the power of the Spirit, all of the access to my presence, the Word of God, every, the church, everything you need to reach godliness, I'm giving it to you. You are righteous in your position. Now use it. Apply it. Get it working. And the God of glory promises to bring that work in to an ever-increasing maturity. That is the heart of the Christian life. Oh, God, may we be so stirred this morning by your great plans and purposes. My conclusion is so simple. God is wanting you to look like him. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so let us give ourselves to our Father's will. Let us go after righteousness, the love for God and people that far exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. Let us look like our Father. I don't know what giant might be in your life right now, but you demonstrate the outworking of your faith by facing it and slaying it through the provision and position that God has given you. But in saying all of that, I'm also aware this morning that there might be somebody here who does not know God as Father. One of the privileges of the Christian is to call him Father. And you can hear sometimes as a person prays, and perhaps this is you, they can say God, but they can't say Father. I ask you this morning, can you call him Father? Father. The privilege of the Christian is to call him Abba. It's to have this tenderness of his presence and a knowledge of his love. That when you pray, you don't pray to him as some distant God. You pray to him as Father. Can you say that in your life? Can you call him Father? Or is he a God to be feared? Is he a God to be called upon in times of trouble? Is he a God that's just simply assessing whether you're right or wrong? And how does that play out? That means that you're always bargaining. You're always bargaining. You've got one hand saying, I've done this for you, God. Would you please do this for me? God, I need you to come through. I've tried this, God. I've done... Uh, a person who does not know God says, God, where are you? A person who knows God says, Father, help me. Father, I need you. Like Jesus says, Father, Father, Father. He called these, his God, Father. And let me tell you the most wonderful thing about the Son of the Mount. For the first time, these Jews got to hear that they could call God Father. No one in their history had said that they could call God Father. Here they can call him Father. Can you call him Father? And if not, I want to help you to do that this morning. I'm going to do that by talking to him. Let's pray. Father, in a moment we're going to come to you. But before we do that, is there anybody here that knows they've never really been able to call God Father? That they understand there is a God. Maybe you've been taught to talk to Him, but you've never experienced Him or approached Him as Father. This morning. I want to help you to do that. There's only one way. as that great hymn puts it, come to the Father through Jesus, his son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And for a moment now, the Father is saying, just turn your attention to Jesus. And would you say this to Jesus? I'm going to help you talk to Jesus. You say to Jesus with me, this is you. Jesus, you know where I've been. You know what I've done. You know my sin. I'm asking you to forgive me. I need that blood that you shed on the cross to wash me clean." I want to be your child. I want you to put your spirit in me. I want you to help me live for you as best I know how. I want you to fulfill your purpose for me. That was you. Then just you keep talking to the Lord, or you keep just where you're at. I want to pray for those of us that have come to that place already in our lives. I want to say to you, Father, this morning, we hear as a church that you want us to become an ever-increasing likeness, like Father, like Son, like Father, like Daughter. Lord, as a church, we want to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We want to be a reflection of who you are, where you've put us. And I pray today, Lord, might you stir us again with one day and all that you would call us to partner with where you've put us, that you'd stretch us today to see the glory of being able to serve Jesus where we work, where we live, where we play, that we get to partner to bring some portion of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray for those that maybe have lost sight of that today. Would they just be rekindled again with what they are here for? For those of us that have struggled with some aspect of feeling motivated or facing some aspect of sin, Lord, I pray today you would remove the veil. You will burn in us a desire to seek first the kingdom and all of your righteousness. We might enter into your plans and purposes that you have for us as SBC. Pray that in your precious and holy name. Amen.